All right, our children, if they would like, can be dismissed for Children's Church. Um, I'm going to start a little differently this morning. Um, I'm going to go ahead and begin with prayer instead of praying after reading the passage. Uh, my, my heart's just heavy this morning. Um, I'm thinking especially of Joe and your family. Um, if you didn't know, Joe's mom, Peggy, passed and on Friday. Um, so if you can keep him and his family in your prayers, especially this week, um, but also just thinking about all of the things going on in our world with, with Haiti and getting hit by another earthquake as if they haven't had enough to deal with and everything going on in Afghanistan. Um, I just want to begin with prayer and just pray for, to our Lord. I'm going to start by praying from Psalms 28. Uh, Lord, to you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. When I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. Lord, would you hear our cries for mercy? Lord, if you do not answer, if you are silent like a rock, if you don't hear our petitions, and if you don't respond from heaven with your mercy, we are all doomed. We will all be stuck down in the pit. Lord, I beg for your mercy this morning. I ask for your mercy and grace for Joe and his family. I ask that you would be a comfort, a peace that passes all understanding. Lord, I ask for your mercy over Haiti for our, our, especially our brothers and sisters in the faith who, who are there, I pray that you would comfort those who have lost loved ones. I pray that you would give those who are there strength to, to help those in need. Lord, would you show up and work miracles that only you can. I, I pray for those in Afghanistan, Lord, those who, whose lives are in danger, would you show mercy? Those who are trying to flee, would you allow them to get out? Would you not just allow them to get out and go somewhere worse or more dangerous, but would you help them get somewhere safe? We ask for peace. Lord, for our community, our nation, our world, who is still yet again suffering from, from COVID, Lord, I ask for your mercy. Lord, would you help vaccines to be effective? Would you help masks and social distancing to work? Lord, would you be gracious? But would you keep this disease from far from us, from those we love, would those who get it be, be healed quickly? But Lord, above all, we, just, we acknowledge that we just have to ask for mercy. Um, we are not in control of anything in our lives, no matter how often we think that that is true. Lord, we ask that you would be merciful and gracious. Um, Lord, above all, or may not above all, but I ask that you be merciful to me in the, this moment this morning. Um, Lord, would you meet with us? Would you not have what comes next be words from my mouth, Lord, but words from your mouth and from your word? Lord, would you show up this morning in a way that only you can? Would you comfort those who mourn? Would you give strength to those who are weak? Would you encourage the discouraged? Would you give comfort to the depressed and the broken? Lord, would you heal the sick? Lord, would you just do what only you can do? 
as we join with believers, not just across our city, but across our nation and across the globe this Sunday morning, who gather together to worship and praise and sing about the resurrected Jesus. Lord, we thank you for that privilege. May we not forget it. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, so now we can transition to the sermon. Um, you know, we read a lot of children's stories in our house, uh, a lot of children's books. And some of them are, are really fun, some of them are less fun, some of them are downright annoying, um, depending on how often they get read repeatedly in our house. But some of them are kind of funny or make me laugh. And one of them that kind of made me chuckle recently is called Are You My Mother? Uh, maybe you've heard of it, and it's just about a little bird who kind of gets born, comes out of his egg, and his mother realizes he's about to be born, so goes off to get him some food. But the mother's not there. And so it's kind of humorous. The bird pops up and just says, hey, hey, where's my mom? And so he goes off on this, you know, kind of grand adventure to try and figure out who his mother is. And so you just see him repeatedly go up to animal after animal and ask them, are you my mother? So he goes up to the cat, are you my mother? Well, no, obviously not. Or, are you my mother dog? Or are you my mother cow? And then, oh, it's a boat. Maybe that's my mother. Or, and eventually, you know, even a construction crane. And finally, it kind of comes to the end, the, you know, the mama bird comes back and, oh, you're my mother. You're a bird. Right? And so that's, that's kind of it. It's, it's really profound. Um, it's a children's story. But it teaches a really simple truth, right? That's obvious to those of us who have long graduated from ha finding those stories fascinating when we were children. As well, just birds and animals look like their parents, okay? A bird looks like a bird because its mom was a bird and its dad was a bird, so it's going to look like a bird. Well, and that's simple, but it's also a deeper truth as well, right? Children look like their parents generally. This is what we do immediately when children are born before they even really look like anything, right? As they're out of the womb, we start deciding, well, who do they look like? Oh, he's got her eyes and that's his nose or, oh, it's your grandfather's ears. I can just tell already, right? We do that quickly. And whether that's true or not in the moment, as children get older, they start to have some more of those and it becomes more apparent. Oh, yeah, they really do kind of look like you. Now, our passage this morning kind of speaks to this same question of whose parent are you? And really that simple story, and as we see revealed in babies and toddlers, that we really do look like our parents. And that is not just true physically all the time, it is also a spiritual truth. And in John, in 1 John 3, our chapter that we're looking at this morning, John tells us there's really only two options for your parents that you're going to look like. You are either born of God... Or you were born of the devil. And you're looking like one of those two. Well, that seems like a pretty important question to figure out which one of those two we are born from. And so that's what we are going to look at this morning in 1 John 3. So if you are able, if you would stand with me um, as we just, in honor of God's word as I read it. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him is purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. 
Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, for no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, when the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. For if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother or sister in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. For by this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we do keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's Word stands forever. And you can be seated. So point number one, if you're taking notes, kind of looking at these first ten verses, is that our practice reveals our parentage. Our practice reveals our parentage. The central metaphor of these first couple of verses is all around parents and their offspring. I'm just going to walk through and point out all the instances of that um, before. So you can see it. Verse one, the father and children of God. Verse two, we are God's children. Verse seven, little children. Verse eight, of the devil which is implying being born from. Verse 9, born of God, for God's seed, born of God again. Verse 10, children of God and children of the devil. And also in 7, again, little children. So you see, all throughout this passage, we have this metaphor of, of children and their parents. And the primary point that John's trying to make in the beginning is, well, who's your parent? Uh, who is that? Are you a child of God or a child of the devil? And verse 10 gives it away, gives us how we can tell this. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Seems like helpful. You'd probably want to know if you're a child of the devil or a child of Satan. That would be important. I would want to know that if that was true of me. Well, here's how you tell. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Whoever does not love his brother or sister, they are not of God. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. John makes it about as clear as you can. Our practice reveals our parentage. It reveals who our parents are. You can tell who our parents are based on the way that we act, based on the things that we do, based on how we live. Children can't help but act like their parents. Okay, even you, whether you liked your parents or not, maybe there was something about them, you swore you were never going to be like that or you were never going to do this. There's still, you may find yourself looking in the mirror one day and realize, wow, I couldn't help it. It, it happened anyway. 
And I see this, oh, it's amazing to watch as my two young boys kind of grow up. Even Calvin is too. He, he imitates us. There's lots of things we teach him how to do and he does it. And that's really fun. And then there's also times he does things and I go, who taught you that? And he does it. Right? A, a simple one that's kind of funny is, you know, he likes to, he sees me right? Reading books and Brianna reading books all the time, but he'll see me as I'm reading. I'm usually writing in books, all right? I always have a pen to underline and circle and write notes and kind of write my comments on the side when I agree or don't agree with what somebody said. That's just my habit. It's what I do. If you borrow a book from me, you'll tell if I read it or not, or you might tell what I thought because my commentary is going to be on the side. But so what Calvin will do sometimes is take a book and then ask for a pen or for a color because he wants to color in his books, right? And teach him to do that. I don't want him to do that, I don't tell him to do that yet, but he sees his dad. He wants to, to be like me, right? And because he's my son, that's what he does. Now, some of those things are really cute like that, and they're kind of funny. Some, there's going to be other things like that that are not very cute. There's going to be other habits he's going to pick up from me that I wish he would not have picked up from me. There's going to be things that he's learned from me that he'll probably need to go to therapy later on for. <laughs> right? There's stuff like that, right? Because our children are like your parents, whether you like it or not. We just can't help it. We turn out like them. And this is true for all of us, not just of our earthly parents, but especially of our spiritual parents. We either act like our father God or we act like our father the devil. And those who make a practice of sinning are children of the devil. These are John's words. I don't really like saying that repeatedly, but this is what John says here, so I'm going to stay true to Scripture, whether it makes us uncomfortable or not. And John says that in verse 8. And he says it again in verse 9, and he says it again in verse 10. Those who make a practice of sinning are children of the devil. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil's been sinning from the beginning. So we sin because our father Satan sins. It's what he's always done from back forever, and so it's what we do as well. We act like our evil parent. And so how do we act like Satan? We probably want to protest and say, John, that, that's too far, man. You're, this is hyperbole, right? You're going very extreme. I don't like this. Sure, maybe I make some mistakes. Maybe I sin every and now and then. I'm not perfect. But man, I'm, I'm not a child of the devil. How dare you say that about me? Well, verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Our sin is not just mistakes. Our sin is lawlessness. Our sin is denying God's righteousness. Our sin violates God's righteousness. It violates God's law. When we sin, when we practice this, when we practice lawlessness, we're running around like little anarchists, telling God, you can't tell me what to do. In one sense, every sin, no matter how small, it's almost like we are shaking a tiny fist up at God and saying, I don't care about your laws. I'm going to do what I want to do. I know better. We act just like the devil, our parent, when we decide we know better than God. I'm going to do my own thing. This is part of why Jesus, when he says to Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan. And you wonder, wow, I, that seems extreme, Jesus. Where'd that come from? You were just telling Peter how good he was doing. Now you're calling him Satan? Why? Well, he's acting like Satan. He's acting like his parent. And I think that's part of why Jesus does that. So one question to ask here then is, what does it mean by practicing sinning? Because the text seems to put a heavy emphasis on practice, right? It doesn't just say whoever sins. It seems to say practicing sinning. This is kind of repeated in verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. So in one sense, it seems to describe a, a life of sin. Of a day in and day out 
normal, habitual, repeated practice of sin. But in another sense, this text also, I think, should make all of us just a little bit nervous. Because what it reminds us is that to sin is to act like a child of the devil. And I think John wrote this, not just in this passage, but if we've seen the last two chapters and we'll see again in the next two, I think he makes us all want to squirm a little bit. I don't think that's an accident. Because the, the last thing I want to do too is to let us all off the hook and tell us, oh, well, this is really about other people other than it's gathered here because we're all really good and all the sinful people are out in someone else's church or not in church. Those are the people who are, are really bad, but we're good. So we're going to pat ourselves on the back and feel great here this morning. Instead, what I think John wants us to do is to look inward at our own hearts, to look in the mirror and say, man, whose child am I really, whose child am I really acting like today? Am I acting like my father God or like Satan? And those who practice sin reveal their parent is the devil. But it's also the opposite is true in verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Children of God act like children of God. And they reveal this by living and acting like Jesus. People should know we are Christians not because we call ourselves that, but because we go around and look and act and talk like Jesus would have. And so it becomes undeniable. And why is this the, the case? Why do we as believers or as children born of God act like children of God? Well, not because we're so amazing or so righteous or amazing. Um, it's really because God does this. Verse 5, you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Jesus came down to adopt children into his family and to take their sin away. He came to destroy these sins. We don't get rid of our own sin. Jesus does that for us. Jesus didn't just deal with the guilt of our sin at the cross so we can go to heaven one day and that's it. He also came to take all of the other sins and our practices of sins out of our lives as well. Verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And those works in this context, these ten verses, seem to be the sins in and of ourselves. Jesus came to destroy those strongholds of sin in our lives. Jesus came to get rid of them. He came to destroy and remove our addictions, our idolatry, our selfishness, our anger, our cruelty. He came to remove our sins. And he does this continually for his children. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. We talked about this last week in chapter 2, right? Abiding in Christ is what keeps us from sin. As we continue to walk alongside Jesus, as we continue to act like Jesus, as we continue to be with Jesus, Jesus himself keeps us from sin. Verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him, being Jesus, purifies himself as he is pure. So really our continual abiding in Jesus, he, Jesus then purifies our own lives. He is the one who then takes the sin away from us. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. And that seed can't help but continue to grow. And as it grows, sin gets pushed more and more out until finally one day we die and the tree comes to life and all of our sin is finally gone. When you've been born of God, you can't help but act like God. When Jesus has come and changed your life, you cannot help but be more and more like Jesus. And the more you abide in him, the more you stay in him, the more you read Jesus' words and try and follow after Jesus, the more you are purified and the more you will act like Jesus. So the question we have to ask ourselves is pretty simple. Well, whose child do you act like? Which parent does your behavior reflect? Which, beha which parent does your behavior reflect this morning? 
or yesterday or last week or the last five years, the last decade or over your life, whose does it look like? Do you behave like a follower of Jesus or do you just talk like a follower of Jesus? Our practice reveals our parentage. Point number two is that our actions reveal our love. Our actions reveal our love. This is kind of the next several verses. The second part of this chapter really focuses on love and how it's revealed because love is meant to be central to someone who's following Jesus. This is why we're called this series Love One Another because John's hitting it over and over. So it begins in verse 11. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. That we should love one another. We're commanded to love one another. And this is a good command, right? This is a popular command. We like this. Pretty much everybody likes this. You'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who would say, I don't like that command to love one another. Okay, whether, no matter your religious background, what God you pretend or say that you follow, or God that you don't follow, because even people who are non-religious will say, yeah, loving one another. Two thumbs up. Like that a lot. Maybe let's just talk about that. Let's not talk about other stuff. Just talking about love one another. Right, but it's really easy to say that we love one another. It's hard to actually love one another. But our actions reveal whether we actually do have love for one another or not, don't they? Love is not determined by words. Three little words, I love you. Okay, we can say that very clearly. You've probably had many people say that to you over your, your life. And some of them who have said that did not actually mean it. And John starts out with an extreme example after he says that. He goes right away. John does not mind hurting our feelings. He says, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one, Cain, born son of the devil, and murdered his brother. Fair to say, not a good example of brotherly love. It's the first example of brothers we get in the scripture, and it does not go well. In case you're not familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, two brothers born from Adam and Eve, and Cain gets mad at Abel, and he kills him. That's what he does. Verse 12 John summarizes it. Well, why did he murder him? Why would he do that? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. They both gave a sacrifice to God. Cain, just from stuff of the earth, and Abel, some of his sheep. And Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to God. God's, Cain's wasn't. Cain decided to kill his brother was the right response, even after he had a talk with God. He responded not by loving his brother. Pretty easy to tell. And verse 15 gives us the warning. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Jesus echoes the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount that if you hate your brother, you are actually a murderer. This isn't John's words. He's quoting Jesus really here. And there's no middle ground. Okay, right? There's no middle ground between being a child of God and a child of Satan. There's also not much middle ground here. You either are loving one another or you're murdering one another. That's it. And murderers have no eternal life. Can't be a follower of Jesus and hate others. Can't be a follower of Jesus and be a murderer in the way that you feel about people. These are the choices. And these choices that we we make, our, our actions actually reveal whether or not we have love or we have hate and murder in our hearts. But it's interesting how we kind of treat hatred especially. Because if you talk, if I came and we were just sitting one-on-one and, you know, the sermon wasn't fresh in your mind and I asked you if you hated anyone, almost all of you would probably say, no, of course not. I don't hate anybody. Hate, that's so extreme. And I think if I continued and went all around town and asked everybody, I probably wouldn't find anybody who would admit to hating anyone. 
It's amazing that there's so much hate in our world and yet none of us hate anybody. How does that happen? Well, that happens pretty easily. We just change the definition of what hate is, don't we? We just lower the standard or we raise it high up so that, well, hate is like up here and like I'm just, I'm just right below it. Like I'm kind of close, but I'm really not hating. I just really, really don't like that person. But it's not hatred. That's not hatred. That's very different. That's very different than what I'm doing. Okay, that's what we do. And so now suddenly none of us are haters. So we can just ignore these verses and skip over it. Got that? I'll focus on the other ones. Thank you, John. I'm good. But what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't lower it to find out that, wow, no one's haters. Jesus raises it and says, no, you're not just all haters. You're actually all murderers too. Why? Because Jesus shows us what holiness is. So if we're going to decide if we're haters or not, we shouldn't compare ourselves to someone else we think is a hater. We should compare ourselves to Jesus. And then say, well, compared to Jesus, am I loving people or am I hating them and murdering them? Cain revealed his hatred through his actions of murdering his brother. We reveal our hatred in, in other ways, don't we? Let me ask you a couple diagnostic questions that might help you see how oh, maybe these are people that I might hate. Who do you find difficult to love? Who are people that you find it really hard to love? Don't say it out loud. You can think of a specific individual. You can think of groups of people. Maybe who's somebody that annoys you? Who's somebody that just frustrates you? Somebody that just, man, every time they open their mouth and talk, it just makes you, you just have to hold your face still because you just want to say something or make a face or just run away. Who's the type of person you have no interest in being around? If you see them at the store, you're going to turn around and go down a different aisle and try and go somewhere else. Who's somebody that if you walked into the room and saw them, it would just, you'd already start filling up with rage and anger because you're just so mad at them. Maybe who's somebody that you think is just the dumbest person in the world. Maybe it's a group of people you think are just the dumbest people. You can't believe anybody would do something like this or think something like that. Maybe for some of you, your answer might be, well, it's Democrats or liberals or communists. Other people in here would be, well, those Republicans, those conservatives. Other people would be, anybody who talks about politics, those are the people I really hate. <laughs> Other people would be, those who never talk about politics, they're so dumb, how could they not? It's the most, I hate those people. Oh, oh wait, we, we just gave it away a little bit. Maybe it's people who are anti-vax or anti-maskers or maybe hate people who are really strong in the vaccine and, and masks or people who talk about it at all or just anything else, right? They're, just think of all of those things, those people who really annoy you and frustrate you and make you angry and then at, look at your own heart and say, well, do I really actually hate them deep down if I'm honest? And we might even say, well, I don't hate these people, but how do you talk about them? How do you talk about them when they're not around? What are the words you use to describe them? How do you speak about them? Do you speak about them as if they're people made in the image of God? Do you speak about them as if they're people that God loves and you're called to love? If they heard the way you talked about them or felt about them, would they feel like you really loved them? Or would they feel something different? I don't mean you have to agree with everybody. I mean you have to have any kind of agreement. It doesn't mean you never have to disagree at all. But what I do mean is, well... We do have to love one another. If we are followers of Jesus, if we are born of God and Jesus commanded us to love one another, then that means we have to love one another. And that means everyone. That doesn't just mean the people that we really like. 
Jesus in other places said, hey, it's easy. Anyone can die for his friends. Every, it's easy to love the person that you like. Real love is loving somebody that you don't like. Real love is loving somebody that annoys you, that you, frustrates you, that you just want to bang your head against the wall when you listen to them talk about that particular subject, whatever it is. Verse 16 shows us how we are to love. By this we know love. So, well, what is love? What are you talking about, John? That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. The best example of love is found in the person of Jesus. He gave his own life freely at the cross of Calvary. And who did he die for? Well, he died for a bunch of people who hated him. He died for a bunch of people who mocked him. All the way leading up to the cross, he was being beaten and mocked. He was blindfolded as they said, prophesy. Hey, who hit you, Jesus? Well, he knew. He knew everything the person that hit him had done in their whole life. And yet he died to save them. He died to bring salvation for all of the children of the devil. He died out of love for people who were unlovable. He died for those men who mocked him, hanging next to him on the cross. He died for those soldiers who beat those nails into his wrists and his feet. He died for the Pharisees who plotted to get rid of him. He died and laid down his life for all of us. That's love. That's real love. And we ought to lay down our lives. We're called to do what Jesus did. To love in that way. To love those who seem unlovable, even when it makes us uncomfortable. And we're called to love them no matter the cost. Well, what if I love them and they're mean to me anyway? Well, look at the cross. What did Jesus do? He didn't get down and say, well, you guys are just being really big jerks, so I'm done. I'm calling it off. No salvation for you guys. No, he died anyway. We're called to love even if it costs us our very lives. Even if loving leads us to death, which it probably won't. Still, we're called to love. And we can't just say that we love one another and not actually do anything about it. That's what John is speaking here in verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. We are to love with our actions. And our actions reveal if we actually are loving one another or if we are just saying that we love one another and then doing something different. Love in deeds is what matters, right? Any fool can stand up at a wedding ceremony and recite some words and promises about love and love forever. Okay, but that's not enough to make a marriage work, right? It takes a lot more than that. It takes a lot more actions and deeds. Those are the things that prove that love that was declared once that can help make a marriage last. John gives an example of what love and deeds is in 17. But if anyone has the world's goods, sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart against him, how can God's love abide in him? Oh, this is a rich verse. You probably preached several sermons just on this verse. John says, here's how we reveal love. When you give to the poor and you give to the needy. When you give to those who, who come and say, I have a need, and then you give to them. That, that is love. And it's not just that. He also then says, hey, and when you don't do that, you're proving that you don't love. And not as you're proving that you don't love, you're proving that God doesn't abide in you. And I'm not sure you're actually a Christian. This is the primary way John uses to say that we reveal our love. One of the main ways we reveal that we are children of God, that we are loving one another, that we are abiding in Jesus, we are walking and living like Jesus, is how we act when we pass a poor person in need on the street. Or who knocks on our door, comes in our path. 
man, this, this is a verse I don't love. I doubt any of us in this room really love this verse unless you are a poor person who is in need. Then suddenly this verse has a different, different spin on it. But well, why? Well, what we do is we, we try to spiritualize this verse, don't we? We really like taking the Bible literally. What the Bible literally says, and you know, take it clearly. Unless it says something like this, eh, no, that one must not be literally. It must mean something else. Can't mean what it seems like it means because I don't like that. It's got to mean something different. So well, I don't want to think that just because I pass a homeless man on the street asking for money, even though I have cash in my pocket, that I'm acting like a child of Satan. That's what this verse would seem to say. If anyone has the world's goods, sees someone in need and closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? I'm going to say, that's, that's unfair. Got all my excuses ready. But the verse starts and says, if anyone has the world's good, you know, world's goods, you notice how it frames that? The world's goods, not your goods, not your stuff. It's not yours at all. It, it, and it's even saying it's the world's because it's trying to point out that that stuff just fades. It's not even God's stuff. It is stuff that when Jesus comes again, it all just burns away and disappears. It's the junk that when you die, your kids will fight over it. It's going to get thrown in the dumpster. They might try and sell it for some extra cash, but it all just passes. It's all junk. And when you have that junk and you see someone who needs some of your junk, the way that you respond when you hold it tight, it reveals you are not abiding in God. So when we see someone in need, what do we do? Do we give it away? Do we hoard it? Too often, what do we, we, we do this? We close our hearts. We harden our hearts. We come up with excuses why our love isn't needed. And we start to rationalize. I can be really good at rationalizing things. We start to rationalize, well, if I actually gave, that would actually be unloving. So the most loving thing that I can do is to not give and to not be loving. Boom, I, I've made it. Or we start to tell ourselves all the way that our greed and our selfishness is actually godliness. Don't we? This verse just cuts through our excuses. We are so uncomfortable. If we have the world's goods, sees our brother and sister in need, closes our heart against them, how does God's love abide in us? I love that it's a rhetorical question. It forces you to answer it. I find in myself, I don't have a good answer to that. Other than repentance. How does God's love abide in him? You can't say that God's love abides in you and treat the needy and poor around you this way. We're called to give. And this is one of the main marks of the early church in the book of Acts, chapter 2. They saw anyone need, they sold the world's goods and gave it away. They didn't just give out of their abundance. They gave out of the stuff that they had and got rid of the stuff and then gave more of that on. As soon as they heard of a need, they met every single need that they could. They didn't say, sorry, too many. We've given enough. We're, we're all tapped out for this month. Come again later. They just gave. This is one of the things I, I really do love um, about Tanglewood. I, I think that we as a church really do embody this generosity well. Um, I love how generous you are. Okay, despite the fact we don't pass a plate around every week, it took me several months before I got the courage to ask, so do people give? Where do we do that? Oh, it's the box that's hidden back there that I would never know that that's where that was if nobody told me. We don't talk about it, so I had to just break down and ask somebody. Uh, but what I love, despite all of that, what, what happens? You, you as a church just give so generously. You don't just give generously to to this church, even as COVID happened and shut down and there were other churches that had to shut their doors. It, you give above and beyond. 
There, there are people who I find out that they have needs, and by the time I find out that they need something, someone else has already paid for it. And I find out for it way down the road. I love that. That's amazing. And what this is, that tells us, hey, when we do that, we are abiding and revealing that we really do love one another. Reveal that we really are the body of Christ. We don't just say it, but we actually live that out. That's significant. Don't stop doing that. And recognize, too, that when we do that, when we live out that generosity, it reveals that God is among us. But if we hold our hearts too close and our goods close, we act not like that, not like children of God, but we act like demons. Point number three is these last, um, last several verses in this passage is that our confidence comes from the gospel, not our obedience. Our confidence comes from the gospel, not our obedience. John has harsh words in this book. We find it in almost every single chapter. Over and over, he just confronts us with questions like that in 17, and there's more and more of those. And almost what, what happens here is it makes all of us want to go and examine our own salvations, no matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, and be, well, hold on, maybe I've got to double check. Am I actually really saved? Well, how do I know? What do I do here? And this is intentional. John wants us to do that, I think. And, but we can still, we can have a couple different reactions to, to that or thinking that. And for some of, for the obedient, for the righteous, they, they're called to be encouraged in their faith. To examine and think and say, yes, I do know Jesus. Well, look at it. I, I know that I know Jesus because I'm practicing righteousness. I'm living like Jesus. I'm acting like Jesus. I'm loving those around me like Jesus did. Verse 21, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So many of you probably should be able to look at your life, examine it, not just today, but over the long trajectory of your life and your practices and say, man, does my life look like somebody who has been walking with Jesus? Have I been growing in holiness? Am I doing things now that I was not doing 10 years ago? Do I love Jesus more now than I did when I first came to know him? And we should be encouraged and have confidence you are a child of God. Hopefully not self-righteousness and think you did it on your own. Right? Because if we're, if we're following Jesus and we're acting more like Jesus, it's not because we're amazing. It's because Jesus has done something amazing in our lives. But the obedient should be encouraged just to see God's work. Now, this also means, too, that the disobedient should be a little fearful. If you've been disobedient, if you've not been acting like Jesus, if instead you've been acting like a child of the devil, if you've not been loving those around you and acting with hatred, this calls us to repentance. This should make us fall on our faces and beg Jesus for forgiveness. If you don't know Jesus especially, this should cause you to repent. should follow the command in verse 23. This is His commandment, that we believe in His name, in the, His Son, Jesus Christ. If that's you, you need to repent and believe in Jesus. If you don't know Jesus and you find that you're acting like a child of Satan, that should lead you to fall on your face before Him and beg for grace. Now, the reality is, too, for even if you're, you're an unbeliever listening or, or here, you may find, even if you find that you're a child of Satan, that seems harsh. But you need to realize, too, it's also for the rest of you believers, all of us, without Jesus, are children of Satan. Ephesians 2 tells us we are all children of wrath. That's where we start. All of us. So what hope is there? Our children of Satan. Well, it's the same hope that Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.3. 3. 
Unless one is born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Why does he say born again? Why does he choose that metaphor? Well, because the first time we're all born children of the devil. And we need to be reborn and have a new father. And the only way to get the new father is through the new birth that comes through Jesus. And this is one of the pictures of the gospel, this new birth and especially his adoption. I love how the gospel talks about itself in terms of adoption. That God sent his son Jesus to die for us. To purchase us. To set us free from our sins. To then bring us into his family. Not because we are really cute. Not because he saw, you know, some moving infomercial with pictures of us with some sad music and thought, oh, I've got to get that one. Not because he always wanted a kid and this was the cheapest one available or just what he could get when they called. And so, sure, I'll take it, I guess. We'll see how this goes. That's not how adoption worked with you and with Jesus. No, you, you've been adopted because he loves you. Because even though you were born a child and a little spawn of Satan, he wanted you in his family. That might seem kind of harsh, but that, that's, that's true. That's all of us. And all of us in this room need or did need to be born again to find eternal life. And yet Jesus gives it. He adopts us into his family, not because we deserve it, but just simply because he loves us and he wants us to be his sons and his daughters. Some of you in this room, maybe you're, you're a little fearful or have some anxiety. I know especially in the early years of being a young believer, this happens a lot. Maybe some of you, this is your story. You can think of those wondering constantly, well, am I really saved? Did I really do it? Maybe I need to pray that prayer again. No, I walked down the aisle once, but maybe that didn't really work. I, I feel like I need to do it again. So here we go. Maybe even, you know, we kind of like to call this rededicating our lives to Jesus, which is like pretty sure I was saved, but I want to try again. So I'm just going to keep kind of rededicating it until I don't feel the need to do that anymore, which probably would just be a week. So we're just going to keep going. That can be some of you, right? Or maybe even got rebaptized a couple times, just in case. So make sure this one really sticks. Let me be honest, okay? I, I did that. When I was younger. Well, there's a verse in here that I love for you, if that's your story. Verse 20. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Your salvation is not dependent on your assurance. Your salvation is not dependent on how sure you are that you really have it. Your salvation isn't dependent on how obedient and how awesome that you really are. Your salvation is dependent on not your obedience, but on the obedience of Jesus. Ultimately, our confidence should not come from the fact that we are amazing and that we are awesome and look how obedient and beautiful and wonderful we are. Our confidence comes from the gospel. And the gospel is the fact that Jesus saved us even though we didn't deserve it at all. And I had nothing to do with it. And yet he saved me anyway. And because he's adopted me into his family, he can't get rid of me. There's no take backs. And you know what? He doesn't want to. He's not sick of you. He didn't make a mistake. Even though you might wonder, did God really, maybe he wanted to save other people, but not me. Well, there's other people I see God adopted. They look better than me. I, I feel like I'm the runt of the family. No, God loves you just as much as every other child. 
Maybe that's you this morning. Your heart is kind of filled up with some condemnation. Maybe you want to curl up in a ball and weep. Maybe this whole book is just, you haven't loved it. It seems like a beatdown of how bad and sinful and awful you are. I want you to hear this verse in verse 20. Whenever your heart condemns us, God is greater than your heart. Maybe you do need to repent of some sins, but hey, if you do, there's forgiveness available. And that forgiveness and grace renews every morning. His grace never runs out. The gospel doesn't mean that we're saved and now we're perfect. The gospel means our salvation rests on God and God alone. That is it. If it depended on you, you would lose it. If it was possible to lose your salvation, every single one of us would do so. But we can't. Not because of us, but because of our God and the way that He saves us. So our confidence comes from the fact our adoption papers are signed and your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. There's no whiteout. It's not being erased. It's not being scratched out. Jesus has saved you. You you are good. You've been born again. You can't be unborn. You will live forever. And so our response to that salvation should be one of obedience. That's, what, that's John's whole point. It, it is not to make you try and think that you can earn your salvation. It is to make you think, man, how wonderful and amazing this salvation is. And the only response out of thinking and, and resting and meditating on the beauty of God's love for me is to then act like God because, wow, he loves me. I just want to do things that make him happy because I love him so much. That's what John wants us to do. And because then when we do that, it reveals that we have been saved. We have to get that order right. We do it not to earn salvation, but because we've already got it and we just can't help it. It should be how we act. So in summary this morning, we just talked about, you know, whose child are you? Are you a child of God or a child of the enemy? And our practice reveals our parentage. How, how we live reveals whether we really have been saved by God and are living in awe and wonder of that or whether we have not. And our actions reveal our love. The, the way that we live, doesn't, it reveals if we really are loving one another or not, as Jesus called us to, but it also reveals whether or not we really do love God or whether we love our sins or something else more. And ultimately, our confidence should come from the gospel, not our obedience. Our confidence comes from the fact that Jesus saved us. We didn't save ourselves. And so as response to that, what do we do? We should act like children of God. What if we really did love one another? What if we were so overflowing with the love of God that everyone we came into contact with just knew that we knew Jesus? Not because we said it, but because we did it and we said it. So they couldn't help but see what if we loved the world so, or we loved even just our community so much that everyone in town would know and hear of our church? Not because of anything about us other than just the fact that we know, man, those are people who just love. Now, whether they come here or not, who cares? Or they go somewhere else to come in God's kingdom, but what if we just loved them so much that they could not help but see the kingdom of God revealed in our lives? Let's love like that. I'm going to invite our worship team to come up as I close in prayer. Lord, I just ask that you would help us to do that. Lord, we acknowledge that we can't practice righteousness. We can't love one another. We can't love our communities. We, we really ultimately can't do anything unless you come and you help us. 
Lord Jesus, would you? Would you send your Holy Spirit in our, in our hearts? Would you help us to abide in you? Lord, would we sense your presence that is always there more? Lord, would we grow in our affections and in our love for you? God, will we be a people who look and live like they are children of God? Will we do this because of the wonderful works that you've done in us? Will we thank you for adopting us into your family? Let us never lose sight of how awesome and amazing that is. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Would you stand as we continue to worship in song? Amen. What a day that will be. I can't wait. Just hear this benediction from the end of 2 Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace.